Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Um, well, let's jump into this morning's message. Uh, today we are in c- concluding our study of Hosea. Uh, we've been taking a, uh, not a detailed look, but just kind of a, a flyover view of the book of Hosea. Uh, my goal during this series has been that we would experience the love and the faithfulness of God, uh, but also be challenged toward uh, greater faithfulness to God. Uh, and so, so my goal uh, throughout this whole series uh, and this series of messages has really been that we would encounter the love of God, uh, that we would become aware of the unwavering faithfulness of God, uh, but more than that, that we would be challenged then to live in greater faithfulness to Him. Uh, in the first week of the series, we learned about the prophet Hosea's life, how he was called to, to marry a promiscuous woman and remain faithful to her uh, despite all of her unfaithfulness. Uh, And this uh, was really a way for the prophet to embody the message that he was called to share. And it was, in fact, a message of God's unrelenting love and his unwavering faithfulness. Uh, Then we entered into a study of Hosea's oracles found in chapters 4 through 14, all the way uh, the rest of the book, after we get the the short narrative of his his life, we enter into the oracles that he would have spoken as a prophet. Uh, And and as we entered into those oracles, we learned and were reminded that true life is found only in Jesus Christ. Uh, That there are lots of different ways and things that we look for uh, and look to to give us life, uh, but true, authentic life is found only in Christ. In the third week of our series, we were challenged to place our hope in Christ and his kingdom alone and not in any particular uh, candidate or party. And then last week, I encouraged us to look at our uh, view of justice, to see if the way in which we understand justice is about restoration or retribution. And we talked about how God's justice is, is really the proper ordering of things and therefore is restorative in nature, uh, that God's justice is seeking to restore things back to their proper order. Uh, I hope again that you've been challenged by God during this series And I also hope and pray that you have experienced the love of God uh, as we've been studying uh, this important book. Uh, So I want to say a word of prayer and then we will jump into uh, the passages of scripture that Cole read for us this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, we come to you today, first of all, thankful uh, that you have loved us so tremendously, that you have poured out your love for us and demonstrated it on the cross. And God, we also want to just pause and and say thank you and praise be to your name for your faithfulness that is never ending. God, despite all of our unfaithfulness, despite of all of our brokenness, uh, you remain committed to us. Uh, And so we thank you for that. And and God, today, as we uh, look at the closing of this important Uh, prophetic book. Uh, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be freely at work in this place uh, to give us a word for our hearts that would be timely in our lives, that would form us and shape us more into your likeness. Uh, Lord, help me to speak the word with clarity, with conviction. And God, I pray that you would translate my words into precisely the words that each one of us need to hear. God, we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
You know, as we have, uh, over the last several weeks, as we have looked at the oracles of Hosea, uh, what we learn is that he's actually very pointed about Israel's failure to live faithfully before God. Uh, in fact, the passages of Scripture that we have pulled out and that we have read are, are really not all that encouraging on, uh, on the face value. Uh, they're not uh, just sort of short, fluffy, light devotional reading before bed. It's, it's, it's the prophet very specifically uh, calling out the sins of the people of Israel. And today's passage is certainly another example of this. Uh, but as we, as we close our, our study of these oracles in particular, uh, and as they have had this sort of very, this, this, what could be considered a negative theme of pointing out the, the sin of Israel, I thought it would be important for us to kind of look in the rearview mirror a little bit and understand how these oracles are structured in very broad terms. Uh, and so very broad, broadly speaking, uh, the, the, the oracles of Hosea are structured like this. Chapters 4 through 6, uh, Hosea is trying to, to speak to Israel about their national sins, uh, or the national sins of Israel. That is to say that, that what he's pointing out specifically in those chapters is their sin in relation uh, to one another. Uh, in, in their relationships, in their dealings uh, with one another, that they are in fact sinful. And he, in, in all of the ways that he's pointing that out are found in chapters 4 through 6. Then in chapters 7 and 8, he moves from pointing out the national sins of Israel to the international sins of Israel. Or, or another way to understand that is now he wants to begin to point out their sin in relation to others. So first, here are the ways in which you have acted and been sinful in relation to one another. And then now the ways in which you have acted uh, sinfully in relating to others. And then in chapters 9 through 11... Uh, which is where we were at last week in chapter 10, uh, what the prophet is pointing out is the promise of Israel's ruin. <laughs> in other words, how their sin uh, will lead to their destruction. Their sins among one another, their sins in relation to others, and how ultimately that will lead to their ruin. A, a common theme in all of these oracles of unfaithfulness uh, has been the loss of life. Uh, the prophet is trying very hard to point out, as, as he's very specific and he's very pointed about the ways in which they have been uh, acting sinfully, uh, he, the word pictures that he consistently paints is that the sin is leading them to a loss of life. And this, that theme is, is picked up again in our passage. I want you to look at verse 3 of chapter 13. He says, therefore they, that is them collectively as a people, they will be like the morning mist uh, or like the early dew that disappears, like chaff swirling from the threshing floor, like smoke escaping through a window. All of these word pictures that he's painting just right in, in succession to one another in verse 3 of chapter 13 are, are word pictures that are really meant to communicate one overwhelming uh, truth that they are, they are losing their life. Now, of course, by loss of life, I don't mean that the, or the prophet certainly doesn't mean that uh, the loss of breath or the loss of a heartbeat, they are still animated and alive, but rather what he's talking about is a loss of vitality. Uh, that is to say that 
They have, they have lost their most essential life. Uh, if you were writing it down, you might say that animation and breathing and a heartbeat could just be life. But when you talk about vitality or authentic life, you might italicize it and just say this is, dis- this is distinguished in some way. This way of speaking about life is distinguished in some way from just being animated or having a heartbeat or drawing breath. But it's rather that, that truest sense of being alive is lost. It's a loss of vitality. And, and what the prophet wants to point out is that because of the sin and how they have related to one another, because of their sinfulness and relating to other people, and because of, that, of their sin certainly leading to ruin, it has led them ultimately to this loss of vital life. Um, you know, I think that we can seek to fill our lives with so many things. Picking back up on, on week two of the series, what I felt like Rick did such a great job of, of showing us. But I, it, it's right here in this passage, and so I want to point on it. I want to uh, pick it up again. Uh, we can seek to fill our lives with so many things. Uh, in order to gain life, we can fill our lives with technology, with work and relationships. Uh, but we must realize that, that life is not found in those things. But rather life, true life, authentic life, vital life is found only in keeping Christ in his proper place in the center. And so that isn't to say that work or relationships or technology or anything else is bad in and of itself. But rather all of those things must find their proper place being centered in Christ. And being honoring in Christ. And then when we do that, we find that our relationships with one another centered on Christ can be a source of that vital life that we look for. That work, when it is done to the glory of God, for the good of his kingdom, can sort of lose that that edge of just being drudgery and just trying to get a paycheck. But when we realize that we are working for the glory of God and the good of his kingdom, and we give it over to him, then all of a sudden work can be a source of that vital life that we look for. But it all has to begin and be centered on Christ. And so, in failing to do just that, Israel has, in fact, lost its life. And so, here we have uh, chapters 4 through 14. The vast majority of which are centered on calling out the sins of this people and how they have lost their life. Wow, that's encouraging, isn't it? (laughs) And you kind of think, wow, where is he going to go from here? Or, or we, might even be, we might be tempted to ask the question, where do we go from here? And, and the, the prophet goes, where you always go. And where one should always go. Whenever life seems out of control, whenever we have failed, whenever you have been let down, whenever you aren't sure what to do, whenever the next season is uncertain, and you are find yourself in a place in your life when you are asking, where in the world am I to go from here? Or what do I do now? We go where the prophet goes, which is to the character of God. We return to the character of God. Verse 4 begins with a very big but. (laughs) That's supposed to be at least a little bit funny. Um, (laughs) 
Verse 4. After saying they are like morning mist, they're early dew that disappears, they are chaff swirling around on the threshing floor, they're like smoke escaping through a window, but I have been the Lord your God. Right? See, the prophet wants to recount the faithfulness of God to them over time. And so in verse 4 he says, I have been the Lord your God ever since you have come out of Egypt. And then verse 5, he says, I cared for you while you were in the wilderness. And then verse 6, when I fed them, they were satisfied. You see, after all of these oracles of outlining the unfaithfulness of Israel, the prophet reminds them again of the faithfulness of God. And that God's activity in their own life. And I want you to see sort of the, the, the diet that, that, he has been, that, that Hosea has been giving this, this people. It's a diet of your own brokenness, your own sinfulness, your own waywardness, your own tendencies to go against God, against the ways of God, and doing all of this. And he wants, to, he wants them to really get a handle on that. But then he returns to the faithfulness of God. He wants to compare these two things as though he is saying, despite all all of your unfaithfulness, God has remained faithful, and let me demonstrate, to, and let me remind you how he has done that. That in the midst of all of their unfaithfulness, God has remained faithful. And I think that's a great thing to do. That any time we find ourselves just in a place of uncertainty or question, whether we are experiencing the, the effects of our own sinfulness or we are the victims of someone else's sin. Or maybe we just experience the brokenness of the world through disease or disaster and we are just uncertain. I think the best thing to do is return to the character of God and just remind ourselves of his faithfulness in our life. That God has in fact been with us. And yes, this, this came upon us. Yes, we find ourselves in this circumstance or in this situation. Whether it was our own doing, someone else's doing, or nobody's doing, it just happened. We need to, re- we need to remind ourselves of the steadfast nature of God's unrelenting love and unwavering faithfulness. And that's precisely what the prophet does for the people of Israel. But he isn't finished. You see, his message isn't over. These, these signs of God's faithfulness that he outlines in just these few verses in chapter 13 are actually going to be the building blocks for the future faith of Israel. In other words, in light of God's faithfulness, the prophet is going to call them to repent and live for God. He spent a lot of time outlining their own brokenness and their own sinfulness. He reminds them of the faithfulness of God, but he does that as a way of setting down a foundation upon which they can begin to build the building blocks of faith. And we need to realize that that's what happens, is that faith doesn't come to us all of a sudden fully matured and, and fully 
fully built up, but rather faith is built in just one building block at a time. And I think a lot of times in our life, we feel like that if we don't have this, this finished structure of faith or this mature faith to offer God, then all of a sudden we can't offer God anything. And that just isn't the case. What is the case is that whatever faith we have or whatever faith we can muster built on the character of God, we just build it one block at a time. And that's what God is calling us to. And that's what he's inviting us into is building a foundation of faith. And I would be willing to bet that all of us have had times or seasons of our life when we were, have been let down, we've been disappointed, we've been hurt, we've been wronged. I would be willing to bet that all of us have had, have had times or seasons of our life when it didn't seem like God was near, that maybe he forgot about you or he was too busy or maybe he was unconcerned. I bet all of us have had times in our lives and seasons in our life when things happened that, that brought pain and brought heartache. But in those moments, if we are going to move forward in faith, we must learn to rely on the true character of God and the faithfulness of God. That the way forward in faith is not a change of circumstance. The way forward in faith is, is not uh, a change in, in, in the outward, but rather the change in the way, the, the, the change that needs to happen is that we need to change our perspective to see the character and the faithfulness of God. And let me just say to you and admit to you that a lot of times the way this is framed, the way this is talked about, particularly in the evangelical world, is that when we place our faith in Christ, then he is therefore obligated to make everything turn out favorably for me. And I would say that isn't necessarily the case. You see, moving forward in faith by recognizing the faithfulness of God and relying on the character of God does not always mean that we can be certain things will turn out favorably. This does not mean that we can be under the illusion that God is then obligated to work things out in my favor. And this also does not mean that I have to be certain of all belief and all doctrine. But what it does mean is that despite all of, these, all of the things that I don't know, despite all of the things that I can't explain, I can still move forward in faith out of confidence in the character of God. And we find confidence in the character of God from the cross and the resurrection. This, this is the center of our faith for a reason. It's because it reveals to us who God is. The cross and the resurrection, more than anything, demonstrate the nature and the character of God. And so despite whatever level of uncertainty we may be facing, we can move forward in faith relying on the character of God as revealed on the cross, which is this. He loves me. He has promised to be with me. And he is good. Now, that's probably a drastic oversimplification about the character of God, but I believe it's enough to go on. That if we, when we look at the cross of Christ, we realize this is Jesus taking on the sin of the world, bearing the weight of sin upon himself. And it is not the anger of God that kills Christ. It is the weight of the sin that he has borne for us that kills him. For the wage or the cost of sin, Paul says, is death. And so Jesus Christ absorbs the sin of all humanity 
on the cross. He dies. But what we also see in that is that Jesus Christ, God made flesh, enters into radical solidarity with you and I. Because you and I have suffered. Amen? And so has he. You see, part of the cross is demonstrating the love of Christ, the love of God for all of humanity. But another important part of the cross is recognizing that Jesus Christ has entered into radical solidarity with you and I. God is with you. And that God is good. Because ultimately what the resurrection shows us is that Jesus Christ took on all sin and it killed him. And he ultimately went down into death. The Apostles' Creed, which we'll begin studying next week in our new series, says that he descended to the dead. That's a way of saying that he swallowed death. And then he defeated it. He took on all of death and defeated it through the resurrection. You see, God loves you. He is with you. And he is good. And the way to move forward in faith is to move in the certainty of those things despite all the other uncertainties we may have. And I would argue that this is precisely what Hosea does in his message. Because after pointing out the sin of Israel, after reminding them of God's faithfulness, he is then going to call them back to God. He is going to call them back to faith, back to obedience. But before he does that, he needs to remind them of the unwavering faithfulness of God. He needs to remind them that God has been with them all along. That despite all of their disobedience, despite all of their sin, despite all of their brokenness, despite all of their rejection of who he is, despite them building up altars to him and then using those same altars to worship gods other than him, false gods, despite all of that, God has stayed true to them. And so he reminds them of the faithfulness of God as a foundation upon which calling them to repentance, which is exactly what we find in chapter 14, verse 1. Return Israel to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. <laughs> but take words with you and return to the Lord. And say to them, and say to him. What the prophet does is he offers them a prayer of repentance. Uh, he gives them a prayer. Uh, the prophet does not say... Uh, make sure your heart is fully in the right place uh, and then pray from your heart. Because after all of that unfaithfulness and all of that sin, I would imagine their hearts, while, may, while they are repentant, I would imagine that their hearts maybe aren't in exactly the right place. Their hearts haven't yet been properly formed. And so he gives them a prayer to pray. And it becomes sort of this, this anchor to anchor them to truth and to faith. And in the prayer that he gives them to pray is, forgive all of our sins, O God, and receive us graciously, that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. Now that's a very specific and that's a very contextually specific way of saying we have placed our trust in something else. 
We have placed our trust in the military might, either of our own or others. Assyria cannot save us, and we will not mount war horses. And we will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you, the fatherless find compassion. That's a beautiful prayer. It's a beautiful prayer of repentance. And he gives them a prayer to pray because there's a pretty good chance that their own hearts can't yet be fully trusted. Uh, That they need words that are true to pray so that their hearts can be shaped and transformed by these words. This is also why, after all of their unfaithfulness, all that they have to offer God is the fruit of their lips, which is, in fact, their words. And so it's a way, uh, it's a way of saying, you know what, we have, uh, we have, you remember last week, the prophet was pointing out that they have given false oaths uh, among one another. They've made oaths to God, which they didn't, didn't then they didn't, <laughs> I'll, get, I'll get there, uh, that they then did not keep. And so they have false oaths. Their words weren't worth anything. And yet here in verse 14, or chapter 14, what we have is, after all of that, the only thing I have to offer God are my words. The fruit of my lips. My own declaration of saying, God, I will turn away from all of these false gods and I will turn ultimately to you. But I think an important piece of that is that they are given a prayer so that they can pray and be anchored in truth. And by praying that prayer, their hearts can begin to be changed and formed and shaped. This, by the way, is precisely the reason that once every Sunday uh, we pray written prayers is because I just believe that given over to our own prayers all of the time, uh, that we, we, we may find ourselves wandering in the land of selfish prayers or greedy prayers or uh, prayers that aren't so much anchored in truth as much as circumstance and feeling and emotion. And there's certainly a place for that in our lives. But we need written prayers that are handed down to us, that are received in order to anchor us in truth and in order to give us language for our faith in in how do we deal with God in times of uncertainty. And so we we pray these written prayers as as just an anchoring uh, to historic church and truth. And then... In verse 4 of chapter 14 is the central announcement of this book. The central announcement of this book. Rendered in the Hebrew, it says this. I will heal their churning away. I will love them freely. For I will churn my wrath from them. I will heal their churning away. I will love them freely. And I will turn my wrath from them. 
In other words, God will do for them what they cannot do for themselves. God says, I will heal their turning away. And, and I think a lot of times we, uh, we think that we can heal our own turning away. We think that we can heal our own brokenness. And we certainly have a role to play in which we recognize our brokenness, in which we depend on the Savior, in which we call for repentance. But let's make no mistake, it is God who does the work in our life. It is God who transforms our hearts. And so God says, I will heal their turning away. And and so God does for them what they could not do for themselves. And isn't that the central claim of the gospel? That we need a Savior. We needed a Savior. And God provided that in Jesus Christ. We needed rescued and we have in fact been rescued. And so the book ends precisely where it began. An announcement again of the unrelenting love and the unwavering faithfulness of God. That God will heal this wayward people and will love them without limits. Praise be to the God and Father, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. That God will heal this wayward people and he will love us without limits. And so the question then becomes, how are we to live in light of all of this? And by all of this, I don't just mean the ground that we have covered today in our, in our cursory look at verses, or chapter 13 and 14, but rather, I, I mean, what are we to do and how are we to live in light of all of this, this story, this narrative of the prophet Hosea that is so powerful in our lives? How are we to live? Well, I think one of the best ways to discover what are we to do with this story is to begin to find ourselves in the story. Where do you see yourself? And I think Hosea speaks in such a way that he really wants the reader or, or the listener to identify with unfaithful Israel. Uh, the whole book, the whole narrative is, is geared in that direction. That the listener, the person reading, in whatever way you're hearing this message, he wants you to identify with unfaithful Israel. And so how do we live in light of that? Well, we need to see our sin. We need to embrace our tendency toward unfaithfulness. We need to wrestle with injustice. We need to discern the object of our hope. We need to grapple with our source of life. We need to do all of these things and then we need to repent. Uh, Repent literally means to to turn around or to go a different direction. Uh, In other words, repentance is not just feeling sorry about uh, all of that, but but rather uh, having a a discerning different direction of our life. It's a different sort of, it's a commitment to a different sort of way. That's what repentance is. And so as we recognize our own sin, as we embrace our tendency toward unfaithfulness, as we wrestle with injustice, discern our object of hope, and grapple with the source of our life, As we do all of those things, in any way that we see those things are off base or misordered, we repent and we say, oh God, would you forgive me? But we need to repent not just of our individual sin or personal injustices, but also for systems of sin and injustice in the world. And may our repentance be comprised of the prayer. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. 
when we see people displaced from their homes because of natural disasters. Lord, have mercy. When we hear of mass shootings, Lord, have mercy. When we recognize our dependence on violence to overcome violence, Lord, have mercy. When we finally recognize that helping the poor of the world has itself become an industry centered on profit, Lord, have mercy. When the only thing we know to do with criminals is to lock them up, Lord, have mercy. When our hope is misplaced, when we have looked for life elsewhere, and when our view of justice is distorted, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And I think there's a whole other list we could just keep going and going and going. Sometimes I think just one of the most humbling, centering responses to whatever we see going on in the world broadly or in our own life is just to say, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Which is in itself a recognition that this is not the way that things are supposed to be. And so in that moment when we recognize and we ask for God to have mercy, we are are simultaneously recognizing this is not the way that things are meant to be. And then at the very same time, that helps us to begin to hope for the day in which all things will be made new where God's justice will rule, where things will find themselves back in their proper place and in their proper order. And so this, this declaration, this crying out for mercy is both itself a, a place of mourning and a place of hope. And I think that's a pretty good place to be for us as the church to begin to just mourn the way in which things are not the way that they are supposed to be and yet hold, like with tremendous faith, hold on to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And so how are we to respond to all of this? Well, we need to recognize our sin. We need to then repent. And then we need to offer to God the fruit of our own lips, which is, upon repenting, we commit to live for God the best that we know how. And we just commit to live for him. And we say, God, as best as I understand your character, as best as I understand your kingdom, as best as I understand who you are and what you're up to in the world, I'm going to align myself with that and I'm going to work in that direction. And we commit ourselves to it. That he will be our God and we will be his people. And we resolve in our hearts that while we may not have all the answers and while we may not have all the best theology, while we may not be able to articulate all the best doctrine, I I can trust in the character of God enough to live for him. And isn't that all that we have to offer God is the fruit of our lips, our commitment to him, our lives, right? And I think so many times we just, we get to feeling that, we get to thinking that we have to have all the answers. We got to know all the best doctrine. We got to have all the, we got to have degrees in theology. And that just isn't the case. 
all we need is this enough certainty in the character of who God is to begin living for him. And so church, may we know the unrelenting love of God today. And may we have eyes to see his unwavering faithfulness to us. For his love for you is unrelenting. His commitment to walk with you is unwavering. I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me, this written prayer that we have received. Uh, We chose this prayer because of a certain line in it, a particular line. It's this line that says that we may steadfastly follow his steps in the way that leads to eternal life. This is just a, a very simple prayer that says not only with the commitment of our lips, the the fruit of our lips, and our commitment to live for him. But God, Holy Spirit, we need you to help us to walk in those ways that lead to eternal life. And so let's declare this. Let's pray this together, that God may be with us and help us to live in his ways. Almighty God, whom truly to know is everlasting life, Grant us so perfectly to know your Son, Jesus Christ, to be the way, the truth, and the life, that we may steadfastly follow his steps in the way that leads to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.